morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to have Bob Fletcher back for the final uh, part, three-part series of uh, his presentations on Revelation. And uh, Mariana will read our Bible verse uh, today. This is Revelation 21.4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So uh, we had uh, about 81 folks last week and uh, we had some of our former members, uh, JB and Adana. So if you guys uh, have friends that you stay in contact with that used to be CUC members or neighbors, uh, please invite them to join us. Uh, so far, we've had room to, to accommodate anyone. So uh, reach out to those uh, that you still have contact with and invite them to join us. We'd love to love to have them with us uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, I'd, I'd like uh, Charlie and Lynn to unmute their mics now. And Charlie has a, a proposal for the class. So Charlie, I'm turning it over to you first. Okay. Uh, I have some financial business to uh, take care of. Uh, for many years, the CUC class has provided a sponsorship for the Malone-Dodson Golf Tournament. This is the primary function for fundraising for the RUMC Foundation. Uh, and I would like to make a motion that this year the CUC class provide a $750 sponsorship to uh, the golf tournament. I second that. All in favor, just raise your hand. All right. Very good. Thank you. Lynn, you had something. Uh, you would... Go ahead, Charlie. Write out a check uh, to the foundation and take it up to uh, Elizabeth Hamilton uh, on Monday. Okay, thanks, Shirley. Lynn, please unmute. There you go. Thank y'all for the support of the foundation. Like Charlie said, this is the fundraiser of the year and it pays for the expenses of the foundation. Um, as you know, you've gotten emails about it and it will be the 23rd annual Malone Dodson tournament. So that's very significant that Malone is, um, it's in honor of Malone. And with him being sick this year, that's really special, I think. Uh, it's on Monday, October 12th, and we're taking all the COVID precautions. Registration's gonna be outside, we're gonna eat outside. Everything's being done so that people can play and feel good about it. So we're looking for players, of course, and uh, Jack Stadler and Shaw are kind of in charge of the players from our Sunday school class. So if you play, please sign up. And I'm looking for sponsorships. 
So sponsorships range from $250 to $7,500, which I don't think anybody's going to donate that, but it would be really nice. Um, also, we want donations and they can be less than the $250, whatever you want to give. So if you'd like to give and support the, the uh, golf tournament, you can go online and fill out the form there, or you can, uh, and donate through that way, or you can uh, write a check to RUMC Foundation for the golf tournament and write donation on there so that they'll know that that's just a donation that we're giving. So I would appreciate all your help. In our class, we have George's, George Waits on the committee, Jack Stadler, I'm on the committee, and then Shaw is the chairman of the foundation this year. So we're well represented, and we would really like your support for the foundation. Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. <clears throat> okay, uh, we've got a really long list of prayer requests today, and I want to make sure that we cover everything. Uh, remember Jim Adcock, that's Malone and Charlotte in your prayers, Mary Kay Mills, Cecilia Moore, Jim Mormon, and uh, a new one I guess that was added this week is Betty Robertson. You probably saw that in the CUC newsletter. She's being diagnosed with fourth stage cervical cancer and she is in hospice care now in Grace Living Personal Care in Marietta. Uh, no visitors, but cards and notes are certainly welcome. The address is in the CUC newsletter. Great to hear that Pat Stamps is feeling better today than she has uh, in quite a while for shingles, and we're thankful for that. Uh, Sharon, mentioned about her, <clears throat> her and Bob's family and friends in Oregon and California. Please keep them in your prayers. Linda Temple, uh, again, she says thank you for your prayers, and uh, they're, they're still searching for the, the right transplant. Uh, Vince Grossi's request prayers for his younger sister, uh, who has been diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. Also, we certainly want to keep Gail and Roger's daughter's family, Cynthia and Tom Weathers, their daughter Holly, and especially their son Tyler in this time of grief because of his uh, wife's uh, passing. Roxanne was only 29 years old. So please keep that entire family in, in your prayers. Continuing uh, prayers for Dick Anthony, the Coonies, Betty and Don Gay, Shirley May, Edna Smith, and Stan and Virginia Tomlinson. Birthdays this uh, week. Uh, Jill, birthday is tomorrow, September the 14th. Janet on the 19th. 
and John Sharp on also on the 19th. Anniversaries, Betty and Don Gay for 64 years. Rose and Jim Lappy, 53 years. And Beverly and Doug Tatum, 22 years. So congratulations to all of those. Okay. Uh, Sandy Martin has our prayer this morning. And then after our prayer, we will turn it over to uh, Bob Fletcher for our lesson. In a recent, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. In a recent conversation over dinner with Patricia Mashburn, she mentioned that her late husband, Larry, who all of those who knew him knew to have been a wonderful man, that Larry always prayed to, if you will, a template, my word, not hers, that was ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanks, and Supplication. Um, for some reason, that really resonated with me as I like structure, and I thought about it frequently. Then, as so often happens, after never having heard of this, I heard about it a couple of weeks later when Jim McCormick mentioned it here in class. One night shortly thereafter, I woke up in the middle of the night. I grabbed paper and a pencil, and I wrote word for word what I'm going to be praying today. I did not change one word of it, except to add the names of those for whom we have special prayer requests today. I believe Patricia was meant to tell me about ACTS, that Jim was meant to reinforce it with me, and that these words are the ones I'm supposed to pray today. So all that having been said, will you bow your heads, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we affirm, Lord, that you are a constant encouragement and presence and love in our lives, and that we strive to love you as you want us to love both you and others. We confess, Lord, that despite your endless love and admonition, and despite our own determination and effort, we fail to love you and others as you would have us do. We confess that despite the example of your son, Jesus, and despite our best intentions, we cannot and do not live the life of purity and purpose that you wish for us. Our sins are sometimes egregious and other times less so, but still we do not begin to measure up to the life we know you want for us. We thank you, Lord, that despite our failures and shortcomings, we, especially those of us gathered here today, enjoy days and years, and indeed entire lives, so rich with your blessings that we should be ashamed to ever wish for more. We thank you for health and love and our embarrassment of material blessings for our families, for our community, for this great nation of freedom and opportunity, for our friends, for our very lives, and for your constant presence in them. We supplicate and pray, Lord, for your wisdom and your direction as we make our life choices, for your forgiveness when we make wrong or hurtful choices, for your compassion as we navigate the moments of pain and sorrow that every life experiences. We pray that we will show generosity and kindness and love toward others as we live out our remaining years. We pray for those we love to thrive and live lives that will please you. We pray for those who feel lost or lonely, for those who suffer from illness or anguish, for those who mourn the loss of a loved one, for those who selflessly serve our country at home and abroad, for those who wrestle with questions of faith, and for each person gathered here to worship you. We pray for those we should love, but often don't. We pray for those named here today, Jim Adcock, Fred Brown, Malone Dodson, Cecilia Moore, Betty Robertson, 
Charlotte Dodson, Bill Griffin, Mary Kay Mills, Pat Stamps, Jim Mormon, Dick Anthony, Pat and Pat Cooney, Betty and Don Gay, Shirley May, Edna Smith, the Schneckenberg family, Stan and Virginia Thomason, Gail and Roger and their family, the Weathers family, Linda Temples, Vince Grossi's sister. We pray for those of us gathered here who need you, but whose names have not been spoken here. We pray for those who lead us at church, in our communities and in this great America, and we pray for peace on earth. And last, Lord, we pray and supplicate for your continuing and ever-present love to strengthen each of us gathered here and to make each of us a better person for your glory and our own salvation. Amen. Thank you, Sandy. Okay, Bob, uh, we'll turn it over to you. All right, thank you, and um, welcome this morning. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to, um, to have the uh, third lesson in Revelation. Uh, the first two, we covered the introduction in chapter one. The second one, we covered the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, which were chapters two and three. And today we're going to hit chapters four through 22, which is a huge hunk uh, of, um, of verses. I'd like to start out with um, a saying from Bishop N.T. Wright, which I like to use at times before I do this lesson. And he says, I have come today to comfort the, the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. So we're going to disturb some comfortable today uh, with uh, Revelations chapter four, Revelation chapter 4 through uh, 22. Um, a little bit of a background so we can all get ready. And that is that, remember, Revelation is the Latin word from the first word in Revelation, which is apocalypsis which is the Greek word, which means to reveal or to unfold or to uh, pull the, the curtain back. Um, it's full of symbols and dreams and, and uh, visions. Um, it's steeped in the Old Testament. Um, when John of Patmos, more, more than likely the apostle John, was steeped in the Old Testament, 404 verses, 275 of them have something to do with the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, Ezekiel, and a lot of Daniel's chapters 7 through 12, as we will see today. It's a circular letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor, but we know that the number seven means perfect and total, so it's written for the church even today, especially as we get into some of this symbolism with raging fires going on and unrest in cities, a pandemic that's flourishing, earthquakes, uh, we even have hurricanes. You're gonna see all of that in Revelation 4 through 22. It was written uh, around 95 AD and the Caesar at the time was Vespasian, uh, was uh, Domitian. And Domitian had just reintroduced emperor worship throughout the Roman Empire. So this, this particular letter is what's called resistance literature. And it was addressing a chaotic situation where the people of God, the Christian, uh, uh, Christian churches, were being persecuted by 
by the Roman Empire, uh, even unto death. And so this was written in such a way to give them hope and to give them encouragement in times of, of chaos. The central question that we're going to go through with chapters specifically six through 20, the central question is, who is in control of all things? Who is worthy of worship and allegiance? Is it Caesar in Rome or is it God, the almighty God on his throne in heaven? And so we'll see how that unfolds in um, especially five through 20. Now, four through 22 is an expansion of what we all pray almost every day, and specifically we pray every Sunday, and that is the disciples' prayer, or the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, we say, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And chapters 5 through 20, and uh, 5 through 22 in Revelation answers that or describes how that will happen. In chapters 4 and 5, we see that God's uh, will is in heaven. And in 6 through 22, we see how heaven, that his kingdom now comes to earth. Um, 6 through 22 also shows us um, the story of how that happens. How does God's kingdom come to earth? And uh, the book does not record sequential series of events. It's cyclical. So it's, for example, the seven trumpets don't follow the seven seals. The seven bowls don't follow the seven trumpets. These are all expansion ideas of the same exact thing that happened in chapters two and three, where if you remember, the writer was, Jesus was telling the churches, you will be suffering and are suffering and you need to repent. And so all of these things are not sequential, but are, are telling us in different visions and in different ways with different symbols the exact same thing. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Think of your worst nightmare that you can possibly think of and multiply it times a thousand. That is what John is trying to portray about how bad it really can get. But you need to be encouraged and you need to continue to be faithful in your faith. He's not giving the reader a precise timeline on the events for the end times. He's explaining what's happening in chapters two and three. Um, so this is the foundation, chapter four. Some people have said chapter four is one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. And chapter four and, uh, um, and chapter five, the main point is who's in control and who's worthy of our worship and allegiance? Well, God and the Lamb are on the throne. And the word throne is mentioned 40 times in Revelation. 
14 of them are in one chapter. So this idea of the throne of God is in direct, um, as we will see, is in direct contrast to Caesar sitting on the throne, a cheap imitation of a ruler of the world. Um, it's a counter to that. So Caesar is not sovereign, church folk, God is. And God is the center of the universe, not Caesar. So let's go to chapter four. We're gonna spend a little time on four and five and a little time on 21 and 22. And then we're gonna get six through 20 is gonna be just the highlights because we, if we don't, we're gonna get all wadded down into the weeds on all the symbolism and, and, and all those things. So let's start with chapter four. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open to heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me was like a trumpet. And we saw that in chapters, uh, chapter one, that the voice that sounded like a trumpet was Jesus. And he said, come up here and I will show you what takes place after this. And at once I was in the spirit, like he was in chapter one. I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone was sitting on it. Now, who could this someone be? And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Interesting. Jasper and Ruby are the first and last stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel that were on the breastplate worn by the high priest at the temple. So this represents the Alpha and the Omega. So who's the Alpha and the Omega? Well, we learned who the Alpha and the Omega was in chapter one. That's God, the Father. And there was a rainbow shone like an emerald around the throne. Well, we know what the rainbow is. That was the covenant that was with Noah. So this is a beautiful rendition of the throne of, of God. And surrounding it was 24 other thrones. Well, that's an interesting number. 24 is 12 plus 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, representing all the people of, of God. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold. The throne came, came from the throne were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So this is a majestic scene. Anytime we, we hear of God, especially in the Old Testament, especially in, if you remember in Exodus, when, when Moses went to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the whole top of the mountain, was nothing but smoke and fire and lightning and thunder, so majestic. And in the front of the, of the, of the uh, throne were four living creatures. One was like an ox, one was like a lion, one was like a man, had the face of a man, and one was like an eagle, and they all had wings. Now, this comes from Ezekiel these four creatures. But in the early church, especially in medieval times, the church, the Roman church, gave those four symbols to the four gospel writers. So the face of a man is Matthew. The lion is Mark. The 
ox is Luke and the eagle is John. So if you go to any of the, the great cathedrals of Europe, or for that matter, yes, great cathedrals of Europe, look for those four signs because they will be in the, they, they will not only be in um, statues in the front of the church, uh, they will be in stained glass, uh, they're in the Bibles uh, that were illustrated back in those days. And if you've ever been to Venice, one of Ruth's favorite cities, I think she's been there 14 times, but in any case, if you've ever been to Venice, you know that the patron saint of Venice is Mark, and that you know that the symbol for Venice is the lion with the wings. Uh, there we go. So that's the symbol of Venice because it comes from Ezekiel and Revelation after the medieval church assigned it to the four, four gospel writers. Um, then everyone starts singing and praising God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I believe you probably have heard that before. Think hallelujah chorus. A lot of the hallelujah chorus comes from Revelation. We'll see that in chapter 19. But holy, 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 Lord is God Almighty. He who is, who was, and is to come. We know from chapter 1 that that is praise to God. And you are worthy, O Lord, our God. So praising, 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 majestic scene of who is in control, who is on the throne, of the universe. It's not Domitian in Rome. It's God in heaven. Then we go to chapter five, which chapter four sets up chapter five. And in chapter five, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing sealed with seven seals. Now that's interesting. Uh, the Romans sealed uh, documents with seven seals the Hebrews sealed them with three. So again, to be contrast of the Roman government, these are the seven seals or the total number of seals that God has on this document. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth could open the scroll and look into it. And I wept, this is John speaking, he wept and wept and wept because there was no one to open the scroll. Then one of the elders says, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Now, who do we think this is? Well, we think this is Jesus. Then, now by the way, this is the first part of John hearing something, but seeing something else, okay? So he heard, this is the lion of Judah. This is a lion who can open the scroll. But then I saw a lamb who had been slain standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures. So what John is, is saying here is, this is a different 
different understanding of power. It's not only the, the lion conquering things, but it's also Jesus conquering evil, as we will see, because he was slain. He was the lamb that was slain, and his blood covered our sins. So you'll see this symbol throughout Revelation of the slain lamb, which is representative of Jesus. And he took the scroll, the, the lamb, took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and they sang a song, you were worthy, you were worthy. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests. Again, everyone singing praises. So now we have God on his throne in heaven. We have Jesus now worthy to open the scroll. What is the scroll? The scroll is the plan of God's redemption and salvation and judgment for the world. So now we're setting up chapter 6 through 22. If John were not on Patmos, but suppose he was in Baton Rouge on a Saturday night, at this point in Revelation, he would say something like this, hold my beer, watch this. So you need to tighten down your seatbelts because we're about to go on a wild ride. Chapter six. So in chapter six, we have the seven seals. I watched the lamb open the first of the seven seals. And I looked and there was a white horse and the rider had a bow. That's your signal to take your pill. And he was a given, yeah. given a crown. So we know that the white horse, we know that whoever rides white horses are the kings of the world who have triumphed during war. Remember, Caesar always rode a white horse in the parade after the war. Contrast that, by the way, to when Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday, he didn't ride a white horse because he wasn't going to be that kind of conqueror. He rode a donkey, which is the lowest form of transportation because he was a humble and meek suffering servant. But here's the first seal, and that's a white horse. And the second seal was a red horse. Um, it had fire coming out of it. The third seal was a black horse. It had a pair of scales. And the fourth seal was a pale horse, which was death. Now, seals two, three, and four represent what man does to man in war. So what man does to man, what people do to people in war, you have, you have blood and fire, you have, you have economic hardship, and you have death, obviously, as a result of war. Then on, in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain. So these are the martyrs. And they yelled out, how long, O Lord, do we have to wait for your vengeance and judgment? Now, the answer to the martyrs is what follows 
in chapters six, rest of chapter six through 20, is how, how does, what's gonna happen for God to judge the world? And then seal number six are what the earth does to man. We saw the first four were what man does to man. Seal six is great earthquakes, the sun turns black, the moon turns red, the stars fall out of the sky. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is what happens when nature does things to man, which we obviously see even this morning about the, the sun turning red, in this case, with fires and earthquakes and hurricanes. Then we go to chapter seven. In chapter seven, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners. And I heard the number of those who were sealed with God's seal. I heard the number 144,000. Well, 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. So that would be the, the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles times a big number, a thousand. But here's what's important. He heard the number 144,000, but when he turned and looked, he saw a great multitude that no one could count. So it's not specifically 144,000. It just represents a vast number of God's creatures, of God's people, so many that he couldn't even count them. And they were standing before the throne of the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne, and they all fell down on their faces. And then one of the elders asked me, those in the white robes, where do they come from? And he said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. And they are before the throne. And on their uh, heads will be a... Um, a seal. And this is the seal of God, the Holy Spirit. So the people of God are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We'll see why that's important a little bit later on. Then we go to chapter 8. And in the chapter 8, when I saw the seventh seal, there was silence. So when the seventh seal was broken, there was complete silence in heaven. And it's interesting, and he says, for about a half an hour. Well, who knows how long a half an hour is in, in heaven, but silence for a half an hour. And then I saw seven angels that had seven trumpets. Now, the seven trumpets don't come after the seven seals. This is just another way to explain what we just saw in the, in the, in the seven seals. Now we're going to expand on that. We're going to look at it a different way. We're going to use some different symbols. So the seven trumpets. Well, the first trumpet was hail mixed with blood. Well, we've seen um, this kind of stuff before, especially in Exodus. We saw, you know, um, the plagues that, that um, Moses brought to Pharaoh to try to get him to to let the people go. So the first trumpet was hail. The second one was a mountain falling into the sea. The third trumpet was a, a star. Um, the fourth trumpet was 
a third of the sun, a third of the of the moon, and a third of the light was distinguished. Extinguished. This is just expanding on the sixth seal that we saw with great earthquakes and the black sun and the moons and the stars. And this is just another way to see it. It's just again, we're talking about bad stuff's going to happen. You're gonna you're gonna go through some bad stuff. Seven churches. Well, let, let me explain it to you a little bit different. It's going to get really bad. So, so those four trumpets explain more like the sixth seal. Then we go to chapter nine. And chapter nine, watch this. In chapter nine, we have locusts. And those locusts have breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings sound like falling water, a rush of wind. Well, that kind of sounds like a helicopter. So, I mean, are we talking about locusts that were the size of helicopters? And then we talk about horses in the sixth trumpet. Horses have smoke and sulfur coming out of their noses. And they have breastplates of iron. Well, that sounds like a tank. So we're talking about horses that look like tanks and locusts that look like helicopters. Man, I don't know about you, but if it's gonna get bad, that's pretty bad. I can't imagine a locust the size of a helicopter or a horse the size of a tank. This is getting, this is, this is, you think persecution is bad, this is bad. And then we go to verse 20 in chapter nine. And it says that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still didn't repent. Do you remember the, the seven letters to the churches? Every one of them said, look, if you're lukewarm, repent. If you're complacent, repent. If you are uh, putting up uh, with the, you're trying to be in the pagan world, but still be a Christian, you better repent. Again, what John is trying to show the churches is, if you don't repent, it's going to get bad. It's going to get really bad. Um, nor, but they didn't repent. Nor did they repent of their murders or their arts or their sexual morality or their thefts. So no matter how bad it gets, sometimes people just, they just don't repent. Then we go to chapter 10 and 11, and we see the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet shows the dominance of the world. And that Jesus Christ is the one who dominates. Now the rest of Revelation talks about judgment, how God is going to judge the wicked and, um, and uh, reward the faithful. So let's go to chapter 12. If I ever get a chance to do a Christmas um, during Lent with you guys, I will use chapter 12 of um, Revelation because it's the other Christmas story. You thought that there was only one Christmas story, but there's another one. Of course, Matthew uh, and Luke have a beautiful Christmas story, but John also wrote one. He wrote it in Revelation. Watch this. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon. She was pregnant and cried out in pain. She was about to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and seven crowns. 
and his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so it may eat her child. Bet you haven't seen that on a Hallmark card. So we got a red dragon sitting in front of Mary to eat the child. You see what happened on, in Bethlehem, there was a corresponding thing happening in, in the cosmos. So then war broke out in heaven and Michael and the angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and the angels fought back, but they were not strong enough. And so the great dragon was hurled down the ancient serpent, who was the dragon? The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So now we have a red dragon and it is Satan. And he was thrown down to earth. And what was his job when he was thrown down to earth? Verse 17, the dragon was enraged and, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, which is Christians. So he came to persecute Christians. Well, we have the red dragon. Well, then we go to chapter 13, and all of a sudden we have two more beasts that show up. The dragon stood on the shore and saw a beast coming out of the sea who had 10 horns and 10 heads. And then the dragon gave the beast the power and his throne and great authority. So the beast coming out of the sea is Rome. And then there's a second beast. And this second beast comes out of the earth from the land. And this represents the people who are associated with the Roman Empire and local authorities to persecute Christians. So we've got Rome, the empire. We have the people that work for Rome. And we have the red dragon, Satan an unholy trinity of three. So then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth and it, let's see, where do I want to go with this? I want to go chapter, yep, chapter 13. And the mark on the people who follow the beasts is 666. Person who has insight calculates the number of the beast. It's, it's the number of man, 666. And it's on their forehead and marked on their hands, verse 16. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, 666 is never going to be 777. 777 is the perfect number. 666 is the imperfect number. 777 is the Holy Trinity. 666 is the unholy trinity. And that number will be marked on their foreheads and their hands, just like in Deuteronomy, where the people of God wear the Shema on their foreheads and their hands, as the Orthodox Jews do today. This is the anti-Shema. This is the evil 666. And you may or may not know this, but in order to do business in Rome, in the Roman Empire, you did have to have a mark on your hand or your uh, arm to show that you um, 
were um, legal uh, uh, to be able to do trade. So, so if you want to follow the beasts, which are any government, any uh, rulers that are anti-God, you want to follow them, you're going to get a mark on your head. It won't be the Holy Spirit. It won't be the 777, which represents the Holy Spirit. It'll be the 666, which is non-Holy Spirit, non-Holy non Trinity, but the unholy Trinity. So now let's go to chapter uh, 15. And in chapter 15, we now have seven bowls of wrath. Now remember, these seven bowls of wrath don't follow the seven trumpets, don't follow the seven seals, another way of saying the same thing to the same churches. Well, what are the seven bowls of wrath? Well, they're going to look very familiar. The first one is sores. The second one is the water turns to blood. Mm, sounds like Exodus to me. Then we have um, scorched earth from the sun. We have darkness. We have frogs. We have hail. We have earthquakes all reminiscent of uh, the plagues of, uh, in Exodus. But the sixth bowl of wrath also tells us that all the kings of the earth are getting ready for a battle. And this battle will be fought on the plains of Armageddon. This will be the last battle fought against evil. But before that battle can be fought, we go to chapter 17 and 18. And we get introduced to a um, very interesting creature. Revelation chapter 17. Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. Well, now that's kind of interesting. Who could, what could possibly be the great prostitute that sits on many waters? With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. The angel carried me away to the spirit to the wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now that could be Satan. And was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she had a gold cup in her hand, and it was, it, it, it had the abominable things of filth of, of her adulteries. So let's paint the picture of Rome for you. Hey, Christians, do you really think that Rome is all with all that beauty? It's so beautiful. It has so many riches. You really think that that's, you know, that's where you, who you want to follow? That's who you is worthy of your of your worship then she had a name written babylon the great the mother of prostitutes and of all the abominations of the earth and i saw the woman was drunk with the blood of god's holy people and then the saint then the angel said to me well why are you astonished i'll explain to you the mystery of the woman the beast which you saw now has come into, into uh, instructions. She sits on seven hills. Ah, well, now it's getting pretty clear who this is. If you've ever been to Rome, 
there are the seven hills of Rome. So this harlot of Babylon is Rome. Again, pointing out um, that the evilness of the day is coming from Rome. And there will be a, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he's the Lord of lords and king of kings. Mm. I believe I heard that before in the Halloween course. And then the angel said, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are the nations that it controls. And the seven, the seven heads and 10 horns are the seven hills. So Babylon the Great, getting set up for her to be uh, killed and triumphed over by the lamb. Then we go to um, the fall of Babylon, and that's in chapter 18. And Babylon has fallen, and the mighty voice shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So she has now dwells with the demons. And so Babylon the great is defeated. So now we have all of all of the things against God, the unholy trinity, Satan, Babylon, Rome, they've all been defeated. And now we've had God's victory. So we go to chapter 19. And chapter 19 is where you will remember some of the words from the Hallelujah Chorus, especially chapters 19, verses 6 and 16. So now we had the great uh, wedding supper of the lamb, the marriage of the lamb, the bridegroom and the, and the bride. And in chapter 19, verse 6, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude singing, hallelujah, our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. And if you go to verse 16, it says, Coming out of the mouth, a sharp sword, he who will rule them with an iron, and on his robe was the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings. So come from the um, Hallelujah Course. So now we have the wedding supper of the Lamb. However, we have a judgment, the first of three judgments, the judgment of the two beasts. So if we go to um, verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet and with these signs received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The two of them were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So the two beasts were judged and all the people that followed them and they were thrown into the fiery lake. But we still have to deal with Satan. So we go to Revelation chapter 20. And in chapter 20, it says, he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, and bound him for a thousand years. Now let's talk a little bit about this thousand years. This is the only place in the New Testament, well for that matter, the only place in, in the Bible that a thousand years is mentioned. And a lot of people have 
different ways of interpreting the millennium, thousand years. There are three specific ways to interpret it. One is what's called post-millennialism. It all has to do with when Christ is coming. So post-millennial means that, that, that there's a golden age where the Holy Spirit works in the church for a thousand years, and then Christ comes again. That's called post-millennial. Thousand years, then Christ. Then there's premillennialism, and it says Christ comes back and rules for a thousand years. So that's post-thousand, then Christ, pre-Christ, then a thousand. Then there are amillennialists, and amillennialists, which I happen to be one, said that this is not some future thousand years. It's just the time between the first coming of Jesus in AD whatever, and the second coming of Jesus. And there's gonna be a time in between, and a thousand is just a big number. So, in fact, if you really think about it, Jesus already reigns. So why would there be a wait for a thousand years? He's already reigning. But anyway, it's not a specific time. And then we get into some interesting concepts. Chapter 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended, and this is the first resurrection. And the second death has no power over them. So these are the people of God who, who will be resurrected, and, and they will not have the second death. But the second death is just like we talked about with the beasts into the fiery lake, people of God won't, won't, won't have that. They won't have a second death. So, um, so then we have the, the great white throne judgment. And that's when the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, the books are opened. There are two books. There's the book of the dead and the book of life. If your name is in the book of life, you don't suffer the second death. If your name is in the book of death, you followed the beasts, you have been complacent, you have um, followed the pagan gods, you have followed the beasts that have appeared over time, Babylon, Edom, Tyre, Rome, yeah, 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 going down the list, then you're in the book of death. And I saw on the great white throne, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. I saw the dead, the sea gave up the dead. They were judged according to what they had done and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire and the lake of fire is the second death. And among anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So now, Everything is cleared up. We've got judgment on the evil of the world, judgment on, the, on those who have followed evil and not followed God. And now everything is in place so that God can fulfill his will in heaven on earth in that 
Now we have the marriage of heaven and earth. And so we go to chapter 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Why? Because sea is chaos. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Now, that's really interesting for people who believe in the rapture. Because if they believe in the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church says you're going to be raptured up, sucked up, right, to, 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 to meet Jesus. Well, it says here that the new Jerusalem is coming down to the new earth. So we have, um, they will be his people and God will dwell among them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who has seated on the throne, I'm making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And to those who are thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So what's not going to be in the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth? What's not going to be in it? Well, there's going to be no sea because if you ever read the words sea in the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, it means chaos. So no chaos. There'll be no death, no tears, no pain. There'll be no evil or any godless, godliness. There'll be no temple. There's a reason that there's no temple, because the temple was where God and man met, right? And that's why Jesus was the temple when he said that the temple will be destroyed in three days and then it will be built again. He was talking about him. He was the, 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 the marriage of God and, and earth in Jesus. Well, now that God and Jesus will be reigning with, his, with their people, there'll be no reason for a temple because they're going to always be there with each other. So no temple. There'll be no sun or moon. There's no need to have night and day because there will always be light, the light of, of God. No spiritual darkness. And there's going to be no curse like it was in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. There'll be no curses in heaven. And then we get to um, the New Jerusalem. An interesting fact in the New Jerusalem is that uh, it describes how beautiful it's going to be. But it also says that it'll be measured 15,000 miles wide to 15,000 miles long. Uh, curious that that was about the size of the Roman Empire in 95 AD. But again, just to show contrast, you know, to the New Jerusalem and the, the New World. So then the angel says to John, don't seal the book. In other words, we need everyone to see this book because you are telling us of the of the wonderful things, what's going to happen when Jesus is coming. So here are seven things that I've learned from Revelation. First, there will be suffering and persecution as part of the Christian life. 
Second, God is sovereign and Christ is king. And they are worthy of our praise and our worship. Three, all things can um, culminate in Jesus. God will accomplish his purpose. He will bring the bride to the bridegroom at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Four, Satan is a formidable foe, but he's defeated. Five, Christians will be preserved by God and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Six, justice will be served. Truth will be vindicated. Evil will be dealt with. And seven, Christ is coming soon. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, glorious almighty creator, thank you for this glorious day you've given us. Thank you for the privilege of being able to read your word and get the word deep in our hearts. Be with us this week. We are going to have some bad things happen. But encourage us to know that in the end, it will be made right. And we ask it all in the precious, precious name of the slain lamb, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate those three lessons on revelations. That's very inspiring. Thank you so much. Look forward to your return in the future.